Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Isaiah. We return once again to Isaiah 49. We have been building up to this point where we saw in chapter 42 the Lord Jesus being commissioned to his ministry. In chapter 49, we saw the Lord Jesus accepting this commission. We begin reading in verse 8. And we read to verse 16 of Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away. And my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far and low. These from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted His people, and will have mercy upon His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Thy children shall make haste. Thy destroyers and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. Thus far in the reading of God's holy and eternal word. And let us, as we, as we open our Bibles, and I invite you to open God's word again to Isaiah 49. I wish there would have been time to go all the way through the end of, of this book, but I'm very thankful that we have arrived in Isaiah 49. I, I do believe, as I was considering what, what could be the last passage that I would have the privilege to preach um, from, And I saw we were approaching this passage that contains this promise. And and in a sense, in this farewell sermon, this is the verse I want to leave with you and and expose and explain. Um, Reading it by itself may, may be confusing to think when you don't know who's exactly speaking. But we hope to see all of this today. But the verse is verse 16 of Psalm of Isaiah 49. Where God says to a people who felt 
confused, forsaken. He says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. And as we saw last Lord's Day when we looked at Isaiah, we saw that Isaiah 42, the Lord, the Father, is setting forth His Son, whom He calls His Servant, He's commissioned there to begin his ministry. Like, like every other prophet had their day of commissioning, so had Jesus, but it was an eternity past. It was something from, from outside of time. He was ordained to come even before we all were here, even before Adam and Eve had committed their sin. There was a reality that God already knew this world would need a Savior. And in Isaiah 42, we, we have this commissioning. And we saw that Isaiah 42, it is Christ who's speaking. It is the servant who is set forth who's speaking. And he's accepting that, that call. He's accepting the ministry to come. But we saw from the very beginning that even, even as he's proclaimed to be the savior of a people, he, he will be the reason that this people could rejoice and be glad. There's a tension because the very servant looks, as it were, to the father and has a form of a complaint. His ministry will be hard. And there will be moments as if it's all in vain. And for those who would be watching, they really thought it was in vain. We mentioned how there's a reality that there's still people today who don't believe in Jesus because they look at his ministry and say, why would I follow a man who was crucified as a criminal? And for all intents and purposes, I still believe he's in the grave and it is shut. He is dead. Why believe in a Savior who's gone? And there are many people who don't believe in Jesus because of the sad realities of the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus himself knew the sad realities of his ministry. And, and this is what can be used, beloved. If, if anyone would still be somewhat in that kind of mindset, or you meet someone in that mindset, tell them, tell them. You know that negativity that you think of the ministry of Christ? Christ spoke of that negativity. He knew about it. It wasn't a surprise to him. Remember in chapter 49, even as he proclaims that he accepts this ministry, he, he was called from the womb, verse 1, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And then you get to verse 4. And this is where there's this tension. This Savior will have a hard time. Verse 4, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught, for nothing. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. He's hoping there's a trust, but he's honest. He's saying, I am laboring, and it seems that it is for nothing. In verse 7, we will see that there will be those who will despise him. There will be nations who will hate him. How can this be a Savior? Well, keep that in your mind. There's this tension. The Savior that is proclaimed to be the hope of the world will have an uphill battle. It will not be easy. It'll be so hard that some people will think he failed. There are people today thinking exactly that. But in the midst of this whole drama there is what we could say the promise for prisoners that will be our first point 
And then secondly, we'll see the command to rejoice. And then we will see the complaint from the church. And I already want to point you to this reality. There's a tension between the ministry of the servant and what he will face. And there's a tension between this promise that there will be such a deliverance, but these very people will find it hard and have their own complaint. That will be our third point. And then fourthly, we'll look at the comfort from the cross. There is, for all who would look at this reality, understanding with eyes of faith, all of the tension goes away. All of the qualm, all of the mountains are made away. So let's start by looking at the promise for prisoners. This promise for prisoners begins, and I want you to notice this, that in verse 6 you notice, God is speaking to the Son. Look, look what it says. And He said, so if you, if you follow the grammar, it is, Jesus, who's saying, I've been called, this is my ministry, but I, I have told the Father, I have told the Lord, it's like I'm working for nothing. And verse 6, look, He said, so now God is speaking to the Son, It is a light thing that thou should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. See, that's verse 6. That's God speaking to, to the Son. And to restore the preserved of Israel, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, and that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the world. God is saying, yes, I know, I understand. Your ministry will be hard. It will be an uphill battle. It will look like you failed. And so, see, it's God speaking to the Son, and look at verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. This is not God helping you. It is God helping this servant, this Savior. And, and so you would look at this and say, Wait, my Savior needs God's help? That's precisely what the text is saying. Now, it's texts like these that make it very clear. Some people are confused, but if you have eyes of faith, this shows how truly Jesus was 100% human. And yet the fact that He dies on the cross and arises from the grave is what proves He's 100% divine. Yes, Jesus on earth needed the Father's help. That's how hard it was for Him to endure the cross. And the Father was saying, look at verse 8, I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate places. So the Son is being encouraged. I, I will use you. you. It will look like it's for nothing, but it will not be for nothing. It will be for everything. You will be a light to the Gentiles, even my salvation unto the ends of the earth. And then verse 9 brings this promise, look, of bringing prisoners out of prison. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, even the little word say there is important. We'll go back to that word right now, pretty soon, I mean. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness show yourselves see he's telling people who are hiding in darkness you don't have to hide anymore come out of darkness be in the light they shall feed in the ways and their pastures shall be in all high places they, they shall not hunger nor thirst neither shall the heat nor sun smite them so see in answer to the sun's 
um, confession that the way is hard, that there is suffering and there is affliction, the Father comforts him by saying, You will be used. I will protect you. I will uphold you. And you will yet tell a people who are in darkness and a people who are prisoners that they may be set free. And what will I do to this people? I will feed them and I will protect them. That is provision and protection. Everything that this people would need. Look how beautiful this reality in verse 11. And I will make all my mountains away and all my highways shall be exalted. Let me say a little something about this phrase. You know, this, is, this was already also earlier, right? Where, where we started in that chapter that, that the command was to say, Comfort ye my people. And we, we hear it in the Messiah that, that, that all of the crooked ways would be made straight and all of the mountains would be made away. This is a figure to say every obstacle in their lives. See, speaking to Jesus, this people is lost. They, they are in darkness. They're in prison. But I'm going to bring them out. And they're going to start walking in a way. But there will be obstacles. There will be difficulties. There will be mountains and there will be valleys. The mountains are hard because you look at them and you don't know even how to start. The valleys are hard because it's dark and dreary. And there are avalanches or avalanches. And what does God do? He says the mountains will be away. The valleys will be exalted. It's, it's just like as we drive in America and we see these big mountains, but then you're in a good highway and you can't believe it. Wow, they made a highway through this valley and through this mountain. And your car just goes smoothly throughout it all. This is what God is saying. He's saying, it's not to say there won't be difficulties. God is realistic. Yes, there will be mountains, and yes, there will be valleys. But there are two things of, of great blessings. God will make them away, which means I will make them passable. And perhaps the greatest blessing is this. Look at the pronoun. In verse 11, it says, And I will make all my mountains and my highways shall be exalted. What you could say is this, that when you are in the way of affliction, you're not in enemy territory. Because God is saying, the obstacles that you will face, they are my mountains. They're His. It's, it's not that, that Satan had a power and enemies had a power to put that there and, and now, now he got you and now you're, you're in a sad way. No, this is what God is saying. Yes, there will be afflictions, there will be difficulties, but I'm their God and the difficulties they encounter will be ordained by me and I will make that difficulty settled and solved. That's what he's saying. And then when they are settled and solved and we go through them, we read already that He will feed us in the way, verse 9, feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. And so it speaks of wilderness, but there's food. It speaks of mountains, but there are ways. This is what God is saying. I, I will provide for my people. But what, what I want you to appreciate is this. 
This promise, which is for you, that there is salvation from darkness to light, was not given directly to you. It was given to the Son who had spoken to the Father that His ministry is so hard, it looks like it will end up in nothing. And God is comforting Jesus by saying how His ministry will profit for all who believe. And this is your blessing. And beloved, I think one of the ways that this really applies to your and my heart and life is this. You will hit those mountains and you will hit those valleys. And as you go through them, I believe what you're supposed to remember is this. This whole trajectory was promised because Jesus said there were mountains, as it were, and valleys for him. And here I am with mountains and valleys. And and you know, beloved, you know how in so many sermons I've spoken about the reality. There's a sacredness of suffering because the moment you suffer, God is giving you something, in a sense a tiny little something that directs your experience that you're experiencing in a sense in the flesh or in the soul or in the mind because suffering can be of every kind and it directs you straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may look around and feel you're alone because no one else has that disease or no one else has that kind of separation. No one, no one had that person that died in your family. See, it's always, every suffering is completely um, individual. No one can measure how heavy it is. And that's usually part of the suffering because you feel you are so alone. Only you know the weight of what it means. But the Lord is saying, no, you're not alone. They began with me. I felt like it was nothing. Dying on the cross and when it got dark and I felt the Father had forsaken me. I had to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can put that speech of Christ on the cross and doesn't it make you think that maybe this is what he was feeling in his heart? Isaiah 49, 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. So I believe what God wants you to know, beloved, as you go through this path and as you see the mountains, as you see the valleys and you feel the suffering, always remember, you are not alone. Jesus knows precisely and more what you feel and he will uphold you he will sustain you he has promised the father has promised this so this all in terms of promise of protection or 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 the salvation for prisoners the prisoners being self set free the promise for prisoners um i want to say one more thing before we move to our another two points are are very short But a couple things before we go to the other points. How will this salvation be achieved? So we we know, we look to Jesus and we know it took Him coming. And we know it took Him living upon this life. And we know that it took Him going to the cross and being a sin offering for our sins. 
that that is what made Jesus feel this was for nothing because it ended up in death. It ended up in forsakenness. He looked at his disciples. They had left him. And he remembered the, the, even on the cross, you can imagine how it was so fresh, the kiss of betrayal. And now he remembers the words of Peter denying him three times when he was there being scourged um, in, in, before Caiaphas. And, and, and the Lord Jesus in his human frame is experiencing all of this. He, he looks at the people. They're still raising their fists. They're, they're those guards who are just saying, if you come out of the cross, we will, we will believe in you. And, and he looks at one side. There was a moment that both... Both of those thieves were also railing at him at the same time. That was all coming to the Lord Jesus. Beloved, remember that series that we made that was, seemed like it would never end about all the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He felt suffering upon his body. They were painful ones. He felt suffering upon his soul. He felt sufferings upon his psyche, upon his nerves. There, there were even the social sufferings of just being ashamed to be there on the cross, a spectacle to all those people. That's what was happening to Jesus. And that is what saves you. But there's a little word here that says how all that can be yours. And it's in a sense, it's exactly what I'm doing. Look, look what... God says to the Lord Jesus in verse 9. I said I was going to go back to the word say. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. And there are some commentators who see in this little word say. And you could imagine that that preachers would, would tend to do this. That they see preaching in many places in scripture. Well, the one that I read that saw this is Calvin. And, and he said this, the word say, this word say in, in Hebrew is the word limor. And he says like this, Calvin, that thou mayest say, he says, is highly emphatic. For it shows that the preaching of the gospel is the means by which we are delivered. If therefore we desire liberty, if we desire the light of the kingdom of God, let us listen to Christ when he speaks. Otherwise, we shall be oppressed by the unceasing tyranny of Satan. You notice, so Jesus did all his ministry. But look what God says to him, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. So it's not that he looks at prisoners, and prisoners is, is a symbol for, for every single one of us who are born into this world, and, and we are in our sins and trespasses. We, we are serving sin. We are wanting to be in that direction. And we need to hear from Christ where he says, Come, go forth. You notice he's not looking at these prisoners and saying, Finish your, your time. Go dig some holes and carry some rocks. Go, go do whatever kind of work certain prisoners are able to do so that they feel somewhat useful while they are in prison. Or, or spend 20 years of your time in prison doing as many good deeds as you can and then go forth. No. Look what God says for Jesus, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. And that little word say is very emphatic. It's the power of the word of Christ looking at the sinner who's in prison, who's in darkness, and he says, go forth. Just come out. 
And in the beautiful way that we can see that this is what happens, beloved, is as you are hearing the gospel proclaimed or as you pick up the Bible and just read it, you will hear, you will read Christ speak to you and he will say, if you are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. That's him speaking. And if you listen to that and say, okay, I will. Lord, I am tired of my sins. I am weary of carrying them. And I want to go to Thee for help, for rest. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even if you die, you will live. He said the word. You hear that. And you say, I believe. And I want to follow you, Lord Jesus. There's life nowhere else. You come out of darkness. You come out of hiding. Christ needs to but speak the word. It can be from reading his word in the Bible or hearing his word proclaimed. We saw this morning, beloved, that faith, nothing is but you responding to the gospel truths. The gospel truths are Jesus speaking. He is there telling you who He is. He's telling you what He has done. He's telling you to look to the cross and and believe that there you have the sacrifice that you need. And, And you respond. And you say, yes, that's the sacrifice I need. Yes, if it weren't for Jesus dying on the cross, I would have to suffer and die for my sins. So when you respond that way, you come out of prison. And you are set free. So this is the first part of this whole portion. And then in verse 13, that's where we have our second point, the command to rejoice. I just want to point this out. If if we put this into points, it's been talking about the promise that there will be this deliverance from prison for prisoners, for people who are in their sins and in the darkness of unbelief. Christ speaks the word, you hear a sermon, you read the Bible, you believe in Him, you're set free. And so, we need to rejoice. Um, This is occasion for joy. That's what verse 13 is all about. Look, sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted His people. See, they were in darkness. They were prisoners, but now they're set free, so they're comforted, they're happy, and will have mercy upon His afflicted. And so, so, so again, remember, the Lord was telling the servant, um, I will use you, I will protect you. Look, look what will happen. It won't be for naught. It won't be in vain. There will be salvation. There there will be mountains for them, but I'll make them away and I'll feed them and I'll use you for all of this. And so now that that is settled, there's this call that the whole world, because when you hear heavens and earth, that's not just islands and, and countries, that's you and me, that all of us would echo forth in praise that there is salvation to be had. There are other places in Scripture where God calls the heavens and the earth to, to listen to His decrees, that's in Deuteronomy 32, to witness the sins of God's people, and, and even to mourn because of how God's people needed to be disciplined. This is in Jeremiah 4, and God calls the heavens and earth to witness all of this sad reality. 
But this is different. The heavens and earth are not being called just to witness or to listen, but to rejoice themselves, to sing an anthem of praise. And, and of course, that, that means that you and I are to sing an anthem of praise, to, to be thankful, to rejoice that there is salvation. That's verse 13. But then we move to verse 14. If you're, if you're with your Bibles before you, you'll see what I mean. Um, the, the tune changes. If this were a psalm to be sung, there, there would be somewhat of a suspenseful song when the servant is complaining about his ministry being hard. But then there is a, a crescendo into joviality and joy that, that his ministry will have a success. And then verse 13 is, is like an apex where heaven and earth are being called to sing and to be full of joy. But verse 14, you can even sense a pause. And the tune goes down dramatically. And the speed as well of the music. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. So this is our third point, the complaint from Zion. And as Zion is a figure for God's people, I'm, I'm calling it the complaint from the church. This is where I want you to see the parallel. Christ is called to a ministry. He looks to the Father and says, it's hard. I'm being called the man of sorrows. They are spitting on my face. I'm being scourged to death. I'm carrying the beam of a cross. I, I have nails upon my hands and my feet. And they are scorning me. And the lights have turned off. And I feel, oh Father, that I must call thee God. Because you have forsaken me. Those are the words of Christ. But as the promise was given to the Son... I will use you. I will uphold you. There will be a people saved. They will have a way. They will be delivered. There's rejoicing. There's gratitude. But when we listen to the church, it's saying, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Beloved, what's happening here has has an element of history and then an element that is practical to your life and mine this very moment. Let's go back to the history. We need, we need to always remember this. this. This was not in a vacuum. It's not just a poetry that, that is to be considered. This had a lot of factual, historical realities to it. Remember, Isaiah wrote this prophetically. The people were still in Judah. They had not yet been disciplined. But by the time of Jeremiah, the next prophet, because the people, especially through the leader, had insisted in idolatry and would not listen to their pastors, to their prophets, and repent and destroy those idols, they were worshiping all kinds of foreign gods. God did allow Babylon to raise as an empire... Nebuchadnezzar came in his mighty, powerful way and through the waves of three captivities. On the third one, everything was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. And the peoples were taken in captivity. This is where that cry comes from. So imagine, beloved. I mean, we, we have an astonishing, amazing, blessed life. 
There was that day in Judah where fathers were leaving dead bodies of their families behind that he dug shallow graves and buried, took whatever he could and followed the soldiers in the captivity to Babylon to make a new life that would last 70 years and it's, it's in that trek through the, through the wilderness that would have come this cry. Okay, we, we remember those promises. We remember that, that God would make a way. We remember that He did say that, yes, there would be discipline, but I didn't think it would be this hard. And in the hearts of the people, they're thinking, did God forsake us? Okay, they're disciplining us, but, but when will he stop disciplining us? So you can imagine now 10 years in Babylon, 20 years in Babylon. And then there would be little children who would be, be talking to their parents, and their parents would mention Judah, and they would say, um, can you tell me where Judah is again? I, I don't even remember our house there. And so these parents would start realizing, we're, we're raising our children who have never seen the temple. They've never seen the glory of Jerusalem. How much longer will we be here? Has God forsaken us? And beloved, isn't that the temptation? When you're going through a trial, maybe it might be friends who have spoken evil of you, or it may have been a disease that's just prolonged, or it's a loved one who has died, and you have this nagging feeling, could it be that God forgot me? And remember when we were seeing this, there were, there, there were two things that, that wrestle in the mind. Either God is not powerful, or He's not willing. Either He, he simply cannot do it, that's why Babylon took the greatest, had the, the, the last word, and you could be in your heart saying, oh, I lost this job and, or I lost this friend. It's because God couldn't, couldn't do any better. Either you can think that or you can think that God doesn't care. And, and at the beginning of, of a few sermons back, main, the main thrust of what God was doing was, don't even think that I can't. And remember the whole emphasis of God as creator and how he has established everything. And we saw the massive reality of the power of God. And he was bringing some elements of the promise of his love. But now what happens is as we get to Isaiah 49, God is bringing this emphasis. I've settled the matter of my power. I will now settle the matter of my love. So he listens to the complaint of Zion. He listens to their, their sadness. This is where I just want to give to you this reality. Look at the text. Christ complained. It was hard. God promised it would be successful. There would be a people saved. This people are promised to be saved. They're rejoicing. But this people are living in, in the context of life here. And these mountains are mountains. And these valleys are dark. And there will be temptation to think, Has God forgotten me? Is He either not powerful or He doesn't love me? And, and you are supposed to, I believe, before we even go forward, there's this one great encouragement. The moment you find yourself complaining that, may it echo through your heart the very words of sorrow and of vanity of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Because I believe in every suffering, the Lord wants this, that we remember, Christ trod this path before me. I'm not alone. 
I have a sympathetic high priest, as we read in Hebrews. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He suffered everything. There's, in a sense, not a single dimension of suffering that Jesus didn't suffer. And so this is the first encouragement. The second one is from the text itself in verse 15. So this is our, our last point, the comfort from the cross. And, and, I, and I say the cross because we know that literally this comfort, this promise that is given here can only be fulfilled in a, in a culminating way on the cross of Christ. And verse 15, he says, Can a woman, see this is God now answering the church. So God answered the son promising that there would be a people. This people is complaining because they are feeling forsaken, and God will speak to them. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. This is the first figure that he gives. I do believe, beloved, that you can search this world for a figure of affectionate, caring, intimate, non-romantic, powerful love. And I don't think there's a greater picture of love than that of a mother with her nursing child. That child needs that mama and sometimes even before the child cries the mother knows the baby needs her and they're drawn to each other the question can a mother forget her sucking child the the answer it's a rhetorical question the answer is absolutely not nursing mothers are the greatest examples on earth of of Love of this kind. Now, I, I said non-romantic because, of course, we think of the love of a husband to a wife. And, and that has been used as a symbol of God's love to us. But, but the kind of love he is putting here is, is showing this affectionate of how he sees each and every one of us as little, infant, needy babies that, of course, a nursing, caring mother would absolutely if she's with her right mind, never, ever forsake. Um, one of the other figures that we have in, in the Bible about love is, is of a shepherd. Um, his love for the sheep. We, we find the figure of, of a hen's love for the little chicks. There's the image of, of a lost possession being recovered. There's the image of, of a hurt traveler and that stranger who was completely a stranger but showed love. And it became even an emblem of how to show love. Um, the Good Samaritan. There's an image of a lost son returning to the embrace of his father. But I, I believe you'll agree with me that none of these capture the nurturing, the protecting, the endearing, the unfailing Love of God as is to be found in a nursing mother for her baby. 
And so God gives this figure first. And he's saying, if you're suffering and you think I forgot you, don't even think that way. Look what God is doing. He's not saying, I'm just like a nursing mother who doesn't forget her baby. He's using her as a paradigm. He's using the nursing mother as a basis. But he's telling us to go beyond that. Because he says, um, they may forget. They are wonderful examples. But sadly, of the whole group, there might be some here and there who do not have that heart. But they are an example. They are a sample. So he says, yet will I not forget thee. So he's really saying, rise above that. And that's who I am. Because I will never, ever, ever forget. It will never happen. So that's the first figure he gives. And then in verse 16, he gives the second figure. He says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. And these two stanzas of verse 16 are to be seen together. They, they are two phrases that are powerful in what they say. You put them together, the power increases. And you'll see what I mean. Um, he says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. There's an element of a figure. But remember, as, as we've seen figures in the Bible, there's some figures that are so close to the reality, they are actually facts. There's something about that here. The figure is this. God is wanting us to see that we are so close to His heart that He has to but look at His hand and our name is there. Graven means etched out like he took a knife and carved it upon his hand not necessarily that he got a a pen or a stylus and wrote but that he would have carved out our name upon his hand that image is there but then the next image thy walls are continually before me that that brings a picture of of an engineer with, with like a map and it's the blueprint of the walls of a city that are either being reconstructed or built And so what we have here is the reality of God saying, I know who you are, and I know how you're faring. I see the walls. I see the structure. I see where the walls are needing to be mended. I see where the cracks are. I know everything about you, God is saying. I don't just know you. I know your state. I know the condition of your heart. I know the ability of your mind. I knew that you were feeling forsaken before you told me you were feeling forsaken. This is what God is doing. And here's the fact. When he says, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, you can see that this isn't just figurative. Because Jesus was not tied to the cross. And he was not stoned on the ground. His execution was not like many of the means that they have throughout history. He was nailed. And his hands were carved. But his hands were carved with a weapon, you could say. The way he wrote the name of those whom he's saying not to worry was written with a nail. 
So that if you would envision Christ in heaven now and he looks at his hands, he sees the marks and the wounds of those nails. We know they're there. Because when he resurrected from the graves, the first night he showed himself to the apostles, minus Thomas, because he wasn't there. And all throughout that week, he was doubting Thomas. He was saying, I will not believe that you all saw Jesus. This is, this is one of the things that really should speak to critics who say, I don't believe Jesus really arose from the grave. Well, well good. Thomas didn't either. You have something in common with Thomas. For, for a whole week, he, he was just like you. You can tell that to your friend. And you can say, but you know what, Thomas? The next Sabbath, he was with the apostles. And you can imagine how the others were there praying, hoping, maybe we'll see Jesus again. Thomas will finally believe. And as soon as Jesus appears on the next Sabbath, he, he, the text has it where he looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, would you not believe unless you touch my hands and thrust your hands on my side? Because that's where he had the other wound. And Thomas sees the risen Savior. And he says, my Lord and my God. The one sight of Christ, and he was a believer. And Jesus said, now that you see, you believe. Blessed are those who do not see, but believe. And beloved, I I want your heart to be worn with the thought, that is you and me this very moment. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're that blessed one, because none of us can see Christ. We cannot see the wound in His hands right now, but we know of one who who doubted because he didn't see it. When he saw Christ, he he believed. And, And see, he saw those wounds. He saw his hands graven. And so this, there's this reality of this verse. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Uh, there, there can be that spiritual, and this is the figure of every single name upon his hand, of all his people. And yet this beauty that the very wound of the nail would be your name. If you believe in Jesus right now, you can have the certainty that that graven mark is your name. And Christ sees that and He remembers you and He knows your state and He will provide what you need. And and see, and how are you learning of all this? It is by me saying these things, but this has not come from my heart. I would never had any idea of all this rhetoric. I'm, I'm I'm just mimicking what God's Word has. I'm speaking it back to you. And what did God promise Jesus? That thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth. And that is my authority to say that as you hear these words and you look to the crucified and you say, I believe that Savior. And I believe He's not on the cross anymore. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's now ascended into heaven and there He makes intercession for me. And when you believe in Him, He's the one saying to your soul, go forth. If you're in the darkness of sin, He will say to you, show yourself. You don't have to hide there anymore. I'll forgive and cleanse you of all your sins. You will be white as snow. Remember, that's how Isaiah began. Though your sins are red as crimson, I shall make them white as snow. One look to Christ, beloved. And if you're saved, and if there are afflictions, you see how the text is speaking to you. You're not alone. Christ had afflictions. 
greater than yours. In, in the text, they're before yours. They're before yours even in this sense. Um, millions and millions of years in eternity. Past, that's where we can speak of millions of years. That's where we can understand. But, but it's not even million, right? Because there's no time in eternity past. Christ knew he would suffer. He knew it would seem like it's vain. You could say that the sufferings of the servant were in his mind and in his conscience in eternity past. Way before you and I had ours. So that when we face ours, beloved, let it, let it be an emblem to you of Christ's. Let you immediately have this thought with this suffering because I know Jesus I'm not alone. Jesus trod mountains greater and valleys darker. And he did that for me. Now I have my mountains and my valleys and they are his. He will be with me. He will feed me. And you see how the Bible is is just one entire unit. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then you get to the verse that says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And not because God plucks us out. Not because He turns on the light. I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. God's presence in your suffering is the comfort that He promises. When Christ knew He would suffer... God promised Christ a people. If you're a saved believer, that's you. If you you will be saved, that's you. To comfort Christ in His suffering, He promised you to Him. And then to comfort you in yours, He says, you're in my hands. The scar will be there and I'll remember you and your plight forever. Don't ever ever, ever doubt that I'm powerful. Don't ever, ever doubt that I'm loving. Because those are simply not true. Calvin says this, In order to express his very strong affection, he chose to liken himself to a mother and calls them not merely children, but the fruit of the womb, towards which there is usually a warmer affection which she cherishes in her bosom, she nurses and watches over with tender care so that she passes sleepless nights, wears herself out by continued anxiety, and even forgets herself. That's what a nursing mother does. And this is what God is saying. I do that better. I do that perfectly. That nursing mother will will have to sleep And it will be the father who will have to go kind of rock that baby to sleep. But I don't sleep or slumber, God says. And and I want to end with with this other thought. Graven. God is saying that there is a graven emblem upon his hands. This is the complete inverse of the culture of the day. In the culture of the day, if you were the servant, you would have the mark of your master. If it were in the Jewish realm, you would have those marks upon your ears, 
showing to whom you belong. You were reminded of the master that owned you. It was humiliating. It was cruel. But that was the order. And God is inverting the order. And he's saying, I will bear the mark upon myself of who belongs to me. I I am, as it were, your servant. And in this matter of how I will care for you, you are the one that that I will protect. You are the one that will be, in in, in a sense, you could say like, like a master of sorts. But of course, we're not masters. But he's saying, I'll bear your mark upon me. God is condescending in the most humiliating way to show and to prove to you that He will never, ever, ever forsake you if you believe in Him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel promise, beloved. Don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. It is so astonishing that yes, people will criticize it. They say it's too good to be true. But this is the blessing. The gospel is true. We're getting it from Christ's word himself. From the Father's word to the Son. The Father's comfort and the Son's comfort to the church. To you and to me. I pray that this may be a comfort to every single heart. As we grow and as we come to faith as we serve the Lord Jesus in our respective places of ministry. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, Lord, how we thank Thee. How we thank Thee for condescending, Lord, to prove Thy love to us. And when we stop to think, Lord, why why would we need any proof? How could we have anything else? Is it not sufficient to see that that yes, unto us a son has been given, that a baby has been born. Lord, isn't it sufficient to see that this baby did grow and lived among us and we hear of the miracles that he did and the majesty of his words? And isn't it sufficient to see that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that our sins could be forgiven? so that we could be cleansed. Help us, Lord, not to doubt of thy love. And even when the mountains come before us, help us remember they are thine, they are your mountains, and help us remember that Christ had bigger mountains yet. And we have, in a sense, a privilege to experience a little something of what he underwent to save us. O Lord, may it make us only love Thee all the more and cherish Thee and praise Thee and that we would join the chorus of verse 13 of the heavens and of the earth to be joyful and to break forth into singing because You truly have comforted Thy people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.